Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf. I am your host, and today I am in Hoi An, Vietnam, in central Vietnam, in Barcelona, not too far from the Rambla, is Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. In Washington, hola, hola Rosa. In Washington, D.C., we have Mika Oyang of the Third Way, where she runs their national security practice. And somewhere else entirely different is Ed Luce of the Financial Times. And guys, we have not done a podcast since American foreign policy went completely batshit in a way that I never even imagined it could. First, in Canada, where we effectively, you know, blew up all the relationships on which American foreign policy has depended for the past 75 years. And then on to Singapore, where the president of the United States fell deeply, deeply in love with Kim Jong-un, giving up the store, gaining almost nothing. And we called uh, it here first. We called it here first on Deep State Radio. Yes, well, we did. We called it exactly right. And so there's so much to talk about that rather than being one of those moderators who offers up thoughtful questions, I just want to turn to each of you, and you can talk about either of those two things. Mika, I've really been enjoying following your commentary on Twitter because you have been sitting there taking a tough line on this, as many others of our friends have been saying, but, oh, this could be such a, a happy ending. And we didn't have a nuclear war. Isn't that a good thing? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of people who are so concerned that Trump might go to war with North Korea, that he just isn't able to actually engage in diplomacy, that any attempt that he makes, it's like, you know, you want to give him a participation trophy. But at the end of the day, there are real security concerns here for the United States. North Korea has actual nuclear weapons, and they've demonstrated in their testing an ability to hit the United States. So this is not just reality TV. This is reality. And I think that it's important that people try and hold Trump's feet to the fire and say, you've got to bring back some real wins here, not just a PR stunt. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, one of the things that struck me was everything you said about the North Koreans is absolutely true. They pose a real threat. But you remember back a few months ago when we were at the brink of nuclear war, the reason we were really at the brink of nuclear war was that Donald Trump was making a lot of crazed statements and ratcheting up the heat. He called it maximum pressure at the time. And now what he did at the summit was essentially gave away the store to avoid the crisis that he created, which is kind of perverse, no? Well, 
would say genius, a little, genius. A little bit fair to Donald Trump. I mean, North Korea did restart testing missiles in a way that was very antagonistic. But this is their playbook, right? They like to engage in these really hostile acts. Sometimes they right take North Korean ships. Sometimes they test things. They do this. They start off with this really aggressive approach. What's different here is that Donald Trump took the bait and started threatening war, thinking that that would back them down. When that approach clearly didn't work, then he decided that he wanted this big summit. And he's basically throwing all these presents at Kim Jong-un's feet and not really getting anything in return for that. Um, And I think that this was a real risk, which is why people were saying, you know, that while the Senate Democrats were saying, hey, there are some real things that you should try to get here. And people were saying, look, you're hemming him in too much. If they pulled him a little bit further towards real concessions from North Korea, it This could have been a real victory, but right now it's actually worse than that because in agreeing to not do exercises with the South Koreans in exchange for the closure of this test facility, he's actually setting back American security. Yeah, well, Rosa, you know, it's it wasn't just that he agreed to give up military exercises, by the way, without discussing it with the government of South Korea, which reacted with some dismay. He also talked about removing troops from South Korea. He also gave Kim the biggest coming out party that's any you know that anybody's had in a long, long time. You know, hailing him for for being a great person to work with, minimizing you know the 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 the, the, the uh, totalitarian slave state conditions in Korea by saying. Well, you know, there are a lot of other bad places, too. I mean, this was everything that Kim Jong-un dreamed of in exchange for, um, well, nothing, really. Uh, yes, that's right. This is, a, this is a happy day for Kim Jong-un, although there is still time for Kim Jong-un to somehow irritate Trump and have the whole thing explode metaphorically and possibly literally. Um, but th- this, was, this was my hypothesis, right, that either Trump was going to fall in love with him or we'd have to go to war, one of the two. There's no in-between with Donald Trump. Um, so, yes, at the moment, it's love, and we're happy to give away the store. Uh, you know, this is not the worst outcome in the world. Giving away the store to a, to a repressive, abusive creep is probably still marginally better than starting a war in the Korean Peninsula that will kill hundreds and hundreds of thousands. So, all things considered, uh, I suppose we should be relieved. But, but no, it's, it's a bizarre moment in American foreign policy. So, Ed, I, I want to give you the privilege that that both uh, Rosa and Mika have had of talking about whatever you would like with regard to either the Korea summit or this Canada travesty. Well, I was uh, just reading through the transcript of the, 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 the long and rambling press conference that Trump gave after the, the summit. In, in Singapore. And uh, it, it is quite extraordinary when he mentions Kim, when he mentions Xi Jinping as well. He talks about great guys, uh, terrific respect for them, tremendous people. And I, I just can't help contrasting, juxtaposing that with uh, the weak and dishonest Justin Trudeau. Uh, it, it is extraordinary. I mean, but both Mika and, and, and Rosa have mentioned that you know, th- this uh, 
this statement that they came out with in Singapore is obviously way better than war. Um, but also that, you know, Trump really has two natural positions, natural sort of modes. One is fawningness, being fawning, and the other is peak. Um, and I fear very much that this very vaguely worded um, uh, statement that extracts nothing specific from Kim, just a vague denuclearization pledge, don't know when, don't know how, don't know where, um, uh, will be followed inevitably by disappointment, uh, at which point we will, we will go into the Trump peak mode. So I understand why people say, look, it's great. It's far better to pe for people to meet and George or not war war, et cetera, et cetera. I couldn't agree more. But not if that George or sets up um, a, a much likelier uh, war war situation down the line. And, and you know, I, I, I fear that Trump, Trump, Trump has been very naive. He's gone for short term sort of political theater and applause. And he set himself up for a failure that he will not blame on himself. Uh, he never admits mistakes, as he astonishingly said in this press conference. He will not admit that he's wrong. He'll find some other excuse. And, and we can only speculate what that kind of excuse would be. Yeah, well, you do raise the question of whether or not peak Trump is Trump peak. But uh, I think, you know, the, 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 the evidence from today, or, you know, which is the day we're recording this, um, is that he views himself as so charming that he could persuade anybody uh, of anything. Now, having said that, the juxtaposition between these two events to me is, is more disturbing than either of them alone. Because Trump seemed to be willing to throw the relationship with our core allies under the bus, enter a trade war with them, talk about their lack of contribution to NATO, reveal his lack of appreciation for NATO, and then at the same time embrace these bad guys and talk about pulling out of the Koreas. And, you know, Mika, in the midst of all of this, is Donald Trump in search of, you know, his sort of, you know, what's in it for him foreign policy, being willing to throw essentially all the core ideas of post-war American foreign policy under the bus, just turn around, get rid of our allies, pull out of the places we've been, embrace the people we were against, and, and, and do this without consulting with anybody, apparently, or thinking about the consequences. I mean, it's very clear he has no sense of history and why America's relationships are built the way that they are built. But what's shocking to me about it is not just that right, we're stepping away from all this all of the history with NATO, but even if you were just to think about it from the perspective of like right now and the Mayfly approach that Trump has to these things, the United States still has more in common with Western Europe, right? Like Trump's racism alone should lead him to think, oh, wait, I should care more about what Canada thinks and what the UK thinks and what the Europeans think than what, than what the Chinese or the North Koreans 
or Duterte or any of these other autocrats think. Like just on This the- is the, the first time I've heard the Trump not quite racist enough, not listening to his racist inner voice critique. <laughs> right. Isn't that cr- I mean, it's crazy, right? Like the, all those people who argue for the supremacy of Western European civilization are embracing a guy who's embracing dictators from sort of parts of the world where we have less in common culturally. So it's very clear he's more comfortable with the autocrats and with the dictators. And perhaps they speak his language of, right, I am the embodiment of the state and I can do whatever I want and shoot people on Fifth Avenue and then that's fine. Um, but he really is stepping away from this Western European tradition of democracy, representation, free press, government accountability, um, and, right, standing in conflict with Russia. It's just, it's shocking to me that people don't see that. There's sort of this collective amnesia amongst his supporters about what America has been for their entire lifetime. Yeah, well, you know, Rosa, I I wrote a couple of columns about this stuff, one in the Daily Beast. I wrote one in uh, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, uh, in which I talked a little bit about something else that happened in the past few days, which was that Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic had put out an article in which he'd called some people in the White House and said, what's the Trump doctrine? And it got a lot of buzz because one of the people in the White House said that the Trump doctrine said, you know, we are America, bitch, or something to that effect, which, you know, people thought was a little shocking. Um But to me, there is actually something unifying behind all this behavior, despite everything sensible and sound that Mika just said. And that is that the Trump doctrine is what's in it for me. You know, he he, (coughs) history doesn't matter. Um, uh, National interests don't matter. Strategy doesn't matter. (coughs) What matters to Donald Trump is, does he think he's going to gain politically out of it or reputationally? or economic. And, and, and that, you know, if you look at it from those conditions, he just turns relationships on or off, uh, you know, at the flip of a switch because he thinks it's going to help him personally. And, and there's nothing else that matters. I, I think that's right. I think, in fact, the doctrine is not we're America, bitch. The doctrine is I'm Trump, bitch. Uh, and I'm sure that is precisely the word that he himself would use if offered the opportunity to do so. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's all about him. It's all about his whims. It's all about his moods. It doesn't really actually have anything much to do with America, uh, as as uh, we we will find out to our to our sorrow. You know what I do think is sort of interesting in all of this, if you take the long view right, um, is that this is an experiment in finding out. Uh, you know, answering a hypothetical question that we've all wondered about for a long time, which is, you know, what does the rest of the world do? if America is sort of off the table, you know, as a leader, America is just gone bananas. Uh, America becomes unreliable slash irrelevant slash destructive in a, in an overt way. I don't just mean, you know, we make bad choices sometimes, but we make bad choices all the time. What does the rest of the world do? And I think we're, we're starting to find out, right. Um, you know, and there could be a silver lining in all of this, which is that this, this could be the thing that once and for all persuades other reasonably democratic, reasonably rights-respecting nations of the world uh, that they need to build 
international governance institutions that provide alternatives to the United States, that they need to build regional alliances that provide alternatives to the United States. And that could actually end up being a good thing, not a bad thing in the long run. Um, on the other hand, it, you know, it's also, it's, it's still unclear. We don't know yet, right? Everybody's still flailing around, kind of going, oh my gosh, did you hear what those Americans just said? That's crazy. That's nuts. You know, so we don't know yet whether they're going to come up with something meaningful as an alternative or whether they're just going to spend the next three years flailing uselessly. Um, but I'd like to think that maybe the result of this experiment uh, will be, you know, four lost years for the United States, but four healthy years for other democratic states. Well, I'm right. And maybe a, re a retuning of the international system to be a little bit more democratic itself. But Ed, you know, um, there was that picture that, uh, that was taken in Canada that showed Merkel uh, leaning over a table, glaring at, at, at Trump, um, Abe watching disturbedly at the side, Bolton apparently talking, which sort of disturbed me that of all the people there, he was the one talking. Uh, that looked kind of like a Dutch old master painting, um, uh, and it, but it raises the question that follows on what Rosa said, and that is, you know, Ed, as as you look at these countries, do you see any sign that anybody is stepping up? The obvious country uh, to step up um, in terms of Europe and the West in general is Germany, and 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 Germany's just incapable of doing it. I, I, you know, so I'm I'm a little bit pessimistic about um, the silver lining to all of this that Rosa has just sketched out that it will force the West to be the West without America in a way you know that it, it wasn't um, beforehand. It'll force them to grow up and take charge. I I, I think that um, Europe's challenges are deeply inward looking. I mean, the, the challenge the new Italian populist coalition government poses to Europe um, is, is existential, um, potentially. Um, and that's going to really absorb Merkel uh, and Macron's um, energies. But there, there's another sort of um, thread to this that I think is worth um, worth exploring a little bit is that even at the best of times, when the the United States had presidents um, who um, led the Western alliance well and championed um, uh, universal rights effectively uh, around the world, there was always and always has been a thin veneer. Um, uh, uh, beneath the veneer of sort of amity, quite a strong, deep uh, anti-Americanism in many of America's allies, culturally, including in my own country, Britain. Are you saying uh, that there are people who don't like us, Ed? That's not nice. You know, there, there are people who caricature America and see, see Americans as uh, a bunch of cowboys uh, who, you know... Uh, um, uh, what? What? will, you know, will, who essentially want the rest of the world to be American, etc. There's strong cultural anti-Americanism beneath the surface in many European countries. And what Trump does is, is give them a great deal of sort of validation and give politics in those countries a respectable anti-American outlet. And, you know, even in Canada now, I mean, you, you see that the... Trudeau's politics, you know, you've um, you've done your best to reach out to Trump and look what he's done to you. There's now a sort of quite quite sort of hardening 
um, uh, anti-American politics developing, even Doug Ford, for goodness sake, the brother of the late uh, Rob Ford, the, 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 the crack guy who was mayor of Toronto, you know, is saying Trudeau's not tough enough on the United States. So what I fear about this is that Trump believes he can turn he can turn the charm on and off. He can turn the peak on and off. Uh, but I think what he is giving um, fuel to is a, a potentially sustained politics of anti-Americanism, which won't serve, uh, you know, our hopes of uh, uh, um, rebuilding the Western alliance after Trump is gone. Well, let's let's sort of shift our focus a little bit. There, there are a lot of takes out there on both of these events, and and you know, the, even the 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 kind of Republican uh, right, some of the people who who've been core supporters of of Trump and other things are are very very uncomfortable with this stance on North Korea. Uh, interestingly enough, there there are people more on the Democratic left who are saying you know, give peace a chance. But the question there and the question for the Atlantic Alliance now is what comes next? And Mika, one of the things that strikes me is there's a NATO summit coming up. Uh, and I guess my first instinct is that Trump the will find a way not- for mischief. Yeah, well, yeah, but that I also find, my guess is that, that, that Trump's going to try to find a way not to go because that's got to be a really bad experience, no? I think that's right. Look, if Trump shows up, I wouldn't be surprised if he asked the, our NATO allies if Russia could join the alliance. I mean, it was just so crazy that he asked that of the G7. He just fundamentally doesn't get some of these purposes. But, you know, he doesn't like the visuals of himself being isolated and all these stories about how America has no friends, then it's probably better for the alliance and for Trump if he doesn't go and send Secretary Mattis in his place. At least then we would have someone who understands the importance of the alliance, who's actually putting resources towards strengthening the alliance and is very concerned about the Russia threat, which Trump, you know, doesn't seem to be at all. He views Putin as his best friend. He's the one international leader that he never, ever criticizes. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I mean, again, you know, we come back to this literally on every single thing. Putin, you know, has systematically sought an outcome of breaking up the Atlantic Alliance, but breaking up America's alliances and undermining America's standing around the world. And literally everything that Trump does advances this. Blowing up the Atlantic Alliance thing is going to pull out of the Koreas. This would have been in the middle of the Cold War um, you know, uh, an impossible fantasy of the Kremlin. And here we are. Uh, it's, 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 it's really quite stunning. Rosa, as we sort of look at next steps, you know, one of the things that I sort of watched in the commentary is, you know, people going, well, you know, John Bolton really ought to quit because this was the capitulation to, you know, the exactly the positions that he has excoriated throughout his career. And then other people were like, well, you know, Secretary Mattis really ought to quit. The president's giving up these 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 exercises and talking about pulling out of the Koreas, which Mattis himself said was not on the table. So, you know, Rosa, who should quit? Well, 
I mean, obviously everybody should quit, but <laughs> most of them won't uh, because they are sufficiently craven that most of them want want access to power, however demented that power currently is. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that would be it would be an interesting test of whether John Bolton has principles, you know, crazy principles or no principles at all. Um, I'm going to predict that the answer to that is no principles at all, that even though, in fact, you know, had he if, if he were true to his crazy principles, he would be having he would be having a heart attack, not Larry Kudlow right now. Um, and the fact that he so far appears perfectly acquiescent in what Trump is doing in Singapore uh, suggests that the answer is none. Um, but but I, I, there has been some buzz in the in the media in the last few days about Trump's behavior uh, at, at the G7 and Trump's behavior in Singapore leading more and more of his few remaining aides to think, gosh, I got to get out of here because this is all so crazy. Um, I, I'm inclined to think that we will, on the one hand, we will continue to see departures and people being forced out, but that we're not going to see some sort of mass exodus in protest at its craziness, you know, that if we haven't seen it yet, uh, we're, we're unlikely to see it anytime soon. Yeah. And, um, Ed, I'm sure you're following this closely, but, um, you know, where's the Republican leadership on all of this stuff? I mean, if you you know I I one of the 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 sort of tropes of the time that really just drives me bananas is well if Obama had done this everybody would go nuts but if Obama had done any of this there would be impeachment proceedings going on I mean we're off in a place that was literally unimaginable um, in 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 terms of where U.S. foreign policy might go just a few months ago. Um, and yet, you know, in terms of Congress as a check on this, there's nothing happening. I mean, one of the things I, that I find really I, surprising here is the Republican silence on this nuclear agreement, right? After all the blasting of the Iran deal as not tough enough, and granted, it didn't address everything, but it was a huge step forward for these guys to stay silent on North Korea, Trump to rip up the Iran deal, he would be lucky to get the Iran deal on North Korea now. I don't even think he can get verification of this closing of this missile engine test facility. I mean, it is really, it's embarrassing, but it seems like they only are willing to measure foreign policy successes when they're in the opposition. And when it's their party in power, they just feel like there's no, there's no benchmarks for them about what American security should be. Uh, I, I'm, I'm still stuck on uh, Rose's sort of vision of the, the whole administration being one giant coronary unit. And it's not just Larry Kudlow, uh, the, although I wish him a very speedy recovery, um, who, who, uh, who ought to be having um, sort of heart failure at the, at the moment. It, this is... Um, uh, this is an extraordinary tribal moment. You know, if Trump were right now with the same, everything exactly the same, um, uh, targeting North Korea in, you know, uh, a game of nuclear brinksmanship, there would be complete Republican unity. I mean, you ask, where is where is the Republican voice of opposition to this? It is very tragically, um, you know, in its uh, last days of life, suffering from brain cancer in Arizona in the form of John McCain. Uh, uh, that there is no serious elected Republican with the 
possible exception, I saw a statement from Tom Cotton sort of saying, you know, we've, this has got to be tough and verifiable, but there's basically no serious elected Republican who is prepared to uh, uh, call out the cupidity and weakness and um, narcissism that has driven Trump to make such a weak agreement. And if Trump turns on a dime and switches from falling to peak, there won't be Republican dissent then either. This is ultimate tribalism. This, is, this is, goes way beyond partisanship, um, uh, standard routine loyalty to your president. This is, this is complete submission to tribal leader. Whatever he does, they will follow. I think, um, I think Ed is absolutely right. And I think that there are two things that the American media keeps underestimating. And one, one is the cravenness of the Republican Party right now. And the other is the craziness of Donald Trump, you know, that we keep seeing all these things in the press about, you know, well, yes, but how will the Republicans react to blah, blah, blah. And the answer is, as Ed says, they will react as if it's all about tribal loyalty and has nothing to do with substance uh, or, you know, or actual policy. And they also keep saying things like, Perhaps Trump is trying to do such and such, and perhaps he is attempting to, you know, reach this strategic outcome or that strategic outcome, and he's doing nothing of the sort. He's waking up and he's doing whatever he feels like doing, and it's got no rhyme or reason to it. I mean, I know I'm a broken record on, on both of these points, particularly the latter point, but, but I think that we all have to accustom ourselves to living in a world we are we are post policy at the moment. We are completely post policy. It is entirely tribal, and the tribal leader is nuts. Um, yes, I think we are tribal, and the tribal leader is nuts. Now, having said that, the tribal leader has to wake up tomorrow morning, Mika, and the next morning, the next morning, he's got an election coming. He's got the Mueller thing out there, and I think he views these things. <coughs> as ways of dealing with that. How would you envision he'll deal with it over the next few months? I mean, I think he'll double down on his echo chamber. Part of the challenge here is that Trump is speaking to and through a media environment that is part of his tribal community. There's no objective accountability for what he's doing, nor any sense of what they as a community demand of their leadership as an objective standard. So I would imagine that he will focus even more on showmanship, on trying to do symbolic things that show that he's tough. Um, and I think he'll try and make this next meeting with Kim Jong-un, which he should definitely do, um, into yet another spectacle. And look, the North Koreans are happy to accommodate that. They, like Trump, love a parade. Well, Ed, you know, one of the things that is implicit in that is that we've just seen the start of this and that we're gonna see more and more summits like this and an ongoing process and Trump saying, just wait. Big things are happening um, <clears throat> all the way through the election. And the same with the trade wars, you know, because he thinks it's a winning issue. Is, is, is what we've seen in the past week, in your eyes, what we're likely to see through November? Uh, yes, yeah, so David, I, sh I, sh I should just so quickly uh, 
Stefano, I think you should order one of those nice cups of, of steaming Vietnamese green tea because you've got a frog in your throat. And, and I, I, can tell from, I can tell you from experience, they clear your throat very nicely, those, those Vietnamese green teas. Um, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I, and uh, I will do that immediately. <laughs> um, uh, yes, look, I mean, the, 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 Trump, the Trump approach to the world isn't completely random. It, it, it's, it's wrong, but it's not entirely, at least in theory, incoherent. It is basically a might is right. Um, we're America bitch, um, view, or we're Trump bitch, um, view of the world, um, in which everything's bilateral. And the idea is that American power is so great that every bilateral relationship America will get the better of and therefore get some repayment for the decades of supposedly being ripped off uh, by the multilateral system. That's, that's Trump in theory. In practice, he doesn't have the subtlety, uh, the knowledge or the patience to follow through this sort of brutal realist vision of the world that he has. And he has absolutely no understanding of the degree to which American power is magnified and based upon systems of alliances, alliance and sympathies and um, American values that can be made universal and shared by other peoples. He has no understanding of how much American power derives from the latter, rather than simply how many uh, nuclear buttons he's got on his Oval Office desk. Um, so, you know, what, what does that mean for um, the coming months? Well, as I said earlier, I think America's allies can't, can't be switched on and off. I don't think the next um, love fest with Macron is going to work because Macron suffered in the polls after coming to Washington and being bro, all bro with Trump and getting nothing out of it. And he would suffer a lot more next time. You know, you, you, can, uh, you can be fooled once, shame on, shame on you, but fooled twice, shame on me. And the, and the politics um, of America's allies is going to, I think, I think we're, we're on a bigger collision course here um, and a more rapid and a more degeneration um, of America's leadership than, than even the last week might have suggested. Um, uh, so what does Trump do about it? He gets more defensive. He lashes out more. Um, you know, he plays to the bases, uh, sort of xenophobic instincts more, and we just get a deepening of the culture war. But, but you know, ultimately this foreign policy is just an extension of the domestic culture war. Well, Mika, that's a pretty, pretty terrifying prospect uh, that things will deteriorate faster than we've seen in the past week. Uh, one possible source of hope might be if there was somebody around Trump who might moderate this, who might take hold of the Korea process, for example, and move us towards verifiable progress of some sort, uh, or might uh, exercise some kind of clarity and strength of will with regard to, say, the NATO alliance, and try to preserve that. Do you see any hint of any kind of leadership of that sort from anywhere within the president's team that might manifest itself over the next couple of months? Yeah, I mean, I haven't lost all hope. I think that 
obviously Secretary Mattis is a strong believer in alliances in NATO. He is very much immersed in the traditional thinking of the U.S. and its alliances and its leadership. And I would say I've been surprised at Pompeo. I mean, we had some indication that he becomes or takes on the culture of the organizations that he works for. Um, but I do think that he is really trying to get to a verifiable deal. And he has in the past stood up for strong, verifiable, some might say unrealistic goals in the Iran negotiation. But I think that he understands what has to happen here for it to be real. Um, and so I think if Trump steps back from this and says, look, We'll meet again, but let's get some things hashed out first and let the diplomats work towards an actual deal and Pompeo can try and do that. You know, I have some hope that they're able to get something measurable the next time around, but I am not optimistic if they're going into it again with this same attitude of preparation's not necessary, I just need to look into his eyes. I mean, presidents are really bad at looking into people's eyes and figuring out their soul, like just uniformly. And so it's not about the character and the ego of the people involved, but what can you get down on paper? What are the real results here? Um, and I think that Pompeo may understand that better than the president does. Well, Rosa, the Iran agreement that we pulled out of was 109 pages long. The agreement that Trump signed that, today- That's 108.75 pages more than Donald Trump is likely to have ever read. That's true, but it's also 108 pages longer than the agreement signed today. Um, and one has to get from here to there. Now, there are a number of people, I think well-meaning people out there, who say things like, well, this isn't a nuclear war, which I think is kind of a low bar for a diplomatic uh, meeting you know, that we've avoided nuclear war, but but that it isn't a nuclear war, and that in fact, um, over the, you know, the, the, that it may be a process that leads to peace. But I think there's a principle in this, and that is that the only way you can actually lead to peace is with the verifiable, identi the identification and verifiable removal of the threat, which requires a process, discipline, attention to detail, people in position to do those things, and, and, and so forth. It anticipates a government of the type that we used to have, but of the type we do not have right now. But maybe I'm overstating it. Maybe there, there, there are people down in the, the, the warrens of the government who will actually be able to do those things, and I'm wondering what your view is. Is, is it possible that someday we'll look back on this and remember Dennis Rodman's tears that this was the happiest day of his life and think, boy, that guy Rodman was a visionary. It's not completely impossible. <laughs> I don't know if that will make Dennis Rodman a visionary, um, but, but no, it's, it's not completely impossible, right? I mean, here's the optimistic Donald Trump scenario. The optimistic Donald Trump scenario is that, is that uh, you know, he declares victory based on, you know, a couple sentences um, but that he is sufficiently uninterested in any follow-through, that he's perfectly happy to permit other people in the government to do the follow-through for him, and they are successfully able to negotiate the fine print in a way that is reasonably acceptable 
in terms of longer-term American interests. So that, it's not impossible. I actually don't think it's particularly likely, however. You know, I think more likely is that we get a bad deal that, that meets the uh, low threshold of success of not a nuclear war, and that's about all it accomplishes. Um, partly because I, I think that, you know, I do think Ed is still being too generous to Donald Trump. You know, Bolton has a we're America bitch, America first attitude. Pompeo has a we're America bitch, America first attitude. And, and they and others in the Trump administration, you know, have, have at least in the past shown a reasonably coherent set of policies that are designed, that I think are, are seriously misguided, but that are at least consistent and intended to achieve objectives that they regard in America's interest. I don't think Donald Trump, it is Donald Trump first. It's, it's, you know, it's not America first, it's Donald Trump first. And that is substantially different from where John Bolton is or Mike Pompeo is. It's going to remain substantially different. There is not some day when Trump is going to wake up and say, you know, what I really need to do is safeguard America's interests in any meaningful sense of the word, whether it's mine or John Bolton's. Every single day he wakes up and he thinks, what can I do today for Donald Trump? And that's it. We've got only about five minutes left, but Ed, are you going to take that standing up, sitting down, uh, lying down? I, 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 I will take, I will continue to sit down. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think that they're necessarily mutually exclusive. I mean, Trump's, um, Trump's pretty random. He's pretty uh, bipolar in terms of his mood swings. He's extremely personal uh, in terms of how he reacts to people. He tends to project his own faults onto others. I mean, witness the recent Trudeau tweet. Um, uh, and, um, I agree with Rose's sort of psychological profile of him. I, I do, though, I think that, you know, he has 30, 40 years of uh, enunciating a very, very crude um, version of, of we're being ripped off and we, and we, and we have to um, stop um, being patsies to our allies. Um, and that, that, you know, that is, a, a, I suppose, um, a sort of troglodyte version of what of the um, uh, America um, we're America bitch um, ideology that Bolton and and Pompeo can better articulate, but I do think there is a consistency there to Trump's view of the world and what and what diplomacy means, um, which is we get more out of you than we have been. Have I stunned everybody into silence? Absolutely not. Um, uh, I'm not in the mean streets of. Vietnam, I'm more sort of on the beach of Vietnam. Um, oh, but great, great real estate, great real estate, just like North Korean beaches. Did you? Exactly. Uh... exactly. But but let me let me turn to to Mika and to 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 Rosa either to respond to what Ed just said. But but there was a, there's a part of this we haven't talked about, um, and that is um, that North Korea is a slave state. It's a state where there's 200,000 people in um, a concentration camp-like prisons in which the, 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 the Kim uh, disposes of family members with anti-aircraft guns. With it, This is a horrible place. And the president of the United States not only embraced this guy, but he tried to sort of talk away how horrible he is and, and effectively really didn't bring up human rights in all of this. And um, you know, Mika, my, my, you know, question is, so does it matter? You know, does it matter that the United States 
no longer seems to put human rights at the center of these issues? Or is that just, you know, is that just window dressing for the left? Um, I, well, it's clear that Trump is unconcerned about people's lack of respect for human rights when he's decided that he likes them. Right. He embraces and regularly talks to Putin, who, you know, poisons people and tries to assassinate people around the world. He shook hands with Kim Jong-un, who fed his family members to the dogs. I mean, this is this is someone whose judgment is based on something else completely. Um, so but at the same time, when he talks about Iran, he will talk about how they abuse human rights. So it's one of these things where he's selectively engaging in this conversation and conveniently ignoring it when it suits him. Um, what that does is for countries that we are trying to get to improve their human rights, they feel like it is in fact just a show. It's not actually a sincere commitment to human rights. And I think that that's actually very troubling for how the United States perceives of itself. It has always thought of itself as the good guys, right? We have always stood against those people who put people in concentration camps, who use comfort women, who engage in massacres and genocides. The, those are not America's friends. And when Trump calls Justin Trudeau a backstabber, but shakes hands with Kim Jong-un, he's sending a very different message that America doesn't care about being the good guy anymore. Well, you know, Rosa, this seems like a very natural place for you to pick up and to wrap things up. Uh, there's a case to be made that America isn't the good guy anymore. Certainly that the American president is not the good guy anymore and that things may get worse before they get better. Yeah, I think that's right. And of course, I think we should remember that this is not entirely new here. You know, that there are lots of people around the world, as well as in the United States, who would say that the United States has been entirely hypocritical in its in its uh, claims about human rights for decades now, that Donald Trump is, in that sense, not that new. Uh, I mean, I don't, and, and, and I think that, while, while on the one hand, I actually do think Trump is unprecedented in all kinds of ways, including his, his utter contempt for human rights. I think that there is some merit to the to the critique that the United States has often voiced support for human rights, but acted in a in a way that's quite contradictory, at least much of the time, although not all of the time. You know, that for every for every good American action, and I can think of lots of them, uh, there have been hypocritical American actions, including in, under the Obama administration. And obviously in the Middle East, for instance, our, our continued embrace of uh, Middle Eastern autocrats after the so-called short-lived Arab Spring. Uh, was a great disappointment and shock to many of those who were protesting on the streets and calling for democracy and human rights. And, and that's been true for decades, you know, that that we have we have very often put what we viewed as national self-interest ahead of human rights uh, when there when we viewed there when we thought that there was any clash between them. We tend to choose the path of self-interest, even as we continue to talk about human rights. So Trump, in that sense, is perhaps the nail in the coffin of any global American reputation for being the good guys, uh, but but other presidents have uh, certainly gotten that coffin lid uh, pretty close to closed as well. 
Yeah. Well, I, have, I have to say I agree with that. I, I think that's a very good summary, Rosa. I agree with it too. And um, Rosa, I thank you for that. Um, and Mika, I thank you for that. And Ed, I thank you for that. We'll be back with another episode of Deep State Radio from various parts of the globe uh, on Thursday uh, of this week. And um, all of us are, well, at least most of us will be back in the United States next week. So that'll, that'll be kind of interesting. Um, but these are interesting times. And, and uh, if you feel that there's aspects of this uh, crazy world that we're not covering here, send in thoughts for uh, future episodes. And if we follow through on your thought, there'll be deep state swag sent your way as, as part of our, our summer of outreach and connection to our wonderful network of deep state radio nerds. In the meantime, again, thanks, Ed. Thanks, Rosa. Thanks, Mika. And we'll talk to you all again soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.